This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez, where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Welcome to a new episode of the Christian Circle Podcast. For our new episode in the month of November today, we have a special guest. We have Miss Anne Gager, the author of God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, who's here to talk to us today about intelligent design. So, Anne, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. I have been um, working on intelligent design for the last 19 years. I got into this ministry because God led me here. He literally took me through all of my graduate degrees and uh, and uh, kept me on science, even when I didn't know why I was studying science. And then he led me to the Discovery Institute. And um, I happened to be there at the right time when they were opening a lab. And so I joined them and that began the whole process. Intelligent design is a, a field that a lot of people don't understand. And it's been a learning experience for me too. I have, besides doing science, I have three grown children and a husband of 33 years. And um, I was a stay-at-home mom for quite a few years, and I homeschooled. So I actually found you on the Discovery uh, website. And uh, tell us a little bit more about um, Discovery in general and what really is intelligent design? Because a lot of people really don't know what that is even. I mean, especially those who are not in the science world, those who don't really um, follow uh, or are into evolution and, and all the other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Let us know what that really means. Okay, um, I'll start with Discovery Institute. Um, it's a think tank that was founded in 1990 by Bruce Chapman and uh, a roommate of his at Yale. And then um, in about 1995, they heard about a case where a professor who had changed his mind about uh, the origin of life and now acknowledged that there needed to be an intelligent designer like God um, to explain the origin of life. And the faculty in his, um, his university were trying to get him expelled basically to remove his ability to teach and to take away his tenure. And uh, um, a young professor named Stephen Meyer had heard about the case and he'd written a letter to, um, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. And it hadn't been published yet until the day that the faculty trial was to take place. And then Wall Street Journal published it, not uh, knowing about what was going on. And the faculty did not remove his tenure or his ability to teach. Um, Bruce Chapman saw the letter and saw the um, the results, and he thought, well, maybe I should bring in Steve Meyer to talk to us, and he did. And that was the beginning of the Center for Science and Culture, which is where I worked. I'm now retired. Um, intelligent design is the idea that there are certain things in the universe that are best explained as the product of having been designed by an intelligent agent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't specify who the intelligent agent is, but from what we know, um, 
the, for example, it has to be an agent who can cause the uh, existence of the universe to come into being, the mm. Big Bang. Yeah. And it has to be an agent who can create life. Um, and it has to be an agent who can create human beings with their intelligence and their free will and their morality. And that leads us to the position that it had to be God. The intelligent agent is God. Mm -hmm. um, we do our work to present evidence for the necessity of an intelligent designer. And um, it's in the hopes that uh, people will learn about this and sometimes be converted. And also it strengthens the faith of Christians who are challenged by um, the problem of scientific materialism that says mm -hmm. there is no God. Um, so just a, a brief comment about conversion. I know several people who were atheists and were converted by the arguments from intelligent design. Mm. So it is possible that this argument will um, cause people to rethink their ideas and bring them to faith. So I'm sure through your work, there has been a lot of evidence in support of the existence of God. And uh, throughout the years, we found that there is more and more evidence that even the Big Bang was caused by someone. It just couldn't have happened. And, and the fact that so many coincidences it's almost impossible that so many coincidences could have led to life um the the studies coming out from cern and all of this stuff so give us some of the scientific evidence of the existence of god that you've come across through your work i started out by looking at how hard it is to change a protein an enzyme from one activity to another because this is a central idea in evolutionary theory that it's easy to convert proteins from one function to another. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to explain all the variety of enzymes that there exist in, in um, life today. So my boss, um, Doug Axe, had already established that particular protein fold, that means its its structure, its um, how it how it folds in space, the way it looks, is unique and it's actually on the order of one in 10 to the 77 power uh, rarity. Now, what that means is 10 to the 77 is a 10 with 77 zeros after it. That's mm -hmm. very, very big. And when it's one over 10 to the 77, that means it's very, very small. Mm -hmm. uh, so small that it's not really possible for a random search to uh, uh, go from one protein to another. Uh, one fold to another. Now, my question was, okay, can you do it when two proteins look alike? Can you change their function? And the answer was, no, we couldn't successfully change an enzyme from one function to another, even if we replaced all the amino acids in the active site, which means the part of the protein where the, the work is done, the, um, the chemistry is done we changed everything in the active site and it still didn't convert the function. So what does this imply? Uh, it implies that uh, evolution is not really possible as an explanation for the origin of all the uh, enzymes in, um, in living things. <laughs> then I went on to ask the question about human origins. I switched gears completely. And um, the reason I did is because Scientists were openly challenging the idea that we could not have come from two first parents. 
they were arguing that we had to come from a population of thousands, maybe 10,000. And um, this was in the scientific literature. A man named Francisco Ayala, Dr. Ayala, had published a paper. Its title was The Myth of Mitochondrial Eve. Mm. And in that paper, he said that um, the math says that we would have to have 34 different alleles, meaning um, 34 divided by 2 is 17. Mm -hmm. And so that would mean there had to be at least 17 people uh, at the time of our origin from non-human primates. Now, okay, back up. That assumes that we do come from non-human primates. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I wanted to find out how solid his research was. Mm -hmm. And short answer is that another group of scientists had redone his work and found that it was not that many. It was more like three and a half people. (laughs) And um, then they did it again, and they found that it was two people. Mm -hmm. I thought this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. So... I decided that we needed to test it using a model. Uh, And the short answer is we made a model uh, where we could start with two people and keep track of their um, genomes, all of the DNA, and let mutation happen as Darwin predicts, Mm -hmm. and um, then let it run forward and we keep track of it all. And you need an awful lot of power in the computer to keep track of all that stuff in the memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to the place where, okay, starting from two, could we get to the place of the genetic diversity we have now in our population? And the answer is yes, mm-hmm. we could, um, starting from two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what this says is scientists can no longer say that it's not possible for us to have come from two. It doesn't mean we proved we came from two, It just means it's possible we came from two Mm -hmm. first parents. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a, as actually a really exciting thing to say that, you know, uh, the scientists, we can't believe everything that they say in the literature. So let me jump to the, the, the other question that had posed you, um, uh, sent you earlier, given that the Adam and Eve story, uh, kind of is relevant now in terms of what you just said, how do we understand the creation story? Because there are always these jokes made that, you know, if we came from monkeys, why is it that we still have monkeys? Um, so how do we understand the creation story? Okay, it's it's um, it's um a difficult process to uh, reconcile what the fossil evidence says and what um, the genetic evidence that I just told you about says. Mm-hmm. I um, I just published a book where I edited it. Um, and in that book, I had a chapter on human origins where I went through all of the science. And I also began by describing what the Catholic Church requires that we believe. Mm-hmm. So let me outline that first. The Church requires that we believe that God created the universe and that he saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. We're also required to believe that he created us. He said that it was very good. He gives us each a unique human soul at the moment of our conception. And we had to come from two first parents. No other human parents allowed. Mm -hmm. 
um, let's call the monogenism. That's the name of the idea, the theological idea. Mm. So what do we do with that information? Um, well, we can say that, yes, God created the universe, that it had a distinct beginning when all of space and all of time and all of um, matter came into being. So that part is taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, now, what about human origins? The fossil evidence says there are lots of creatures that looked like us coming forward in time, mm -hmm. and um, they get pretty close to us. Now, so the question is, did we evolve from those creatures? Mm. And I don't think we did. And the reason is there is a gap in the story where there were creatures that looked more like um, apes. Mm. And then there's a gap where all of a sudden uh, creatures that looked like us appeared. Mm. And um, going forward from that time, um, they looked more and more like us. Now, I, I think that um, it's possible those those um, fossils, those they're called Homo erectus, are the origin. Or it could be that that um, a more recent version um, fossil called um, Homo heidelbergensis, or uh, they give it other names, um, were the first humans. Mm -hmm. And... My particular idea is that God created Adam and Eve out of the dust, mm -hmm. just two, somewhere in um, Palestine or in Africa mm -hmm. and in the Garden of Eden. And they lived there for a long time. We don't know how long. And then they committed the original sin and were expelled. Mm -hmm. They were expelled into the world where there were other human-like creatures mm. and since they were only two of them or their children to start it wouldn't have been a very big population so it's quite possible they wouldn't be detectable in fossil remains now mm. and um, I believe that it is literally from the dust the reason being um, this gets really theological it's not science um, do you want me to continue sure yeah Okay. The Blessed Mother mm -hmm. was conceived immaculate. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is because she was to bear Jesus, mm -hmm. who, who is um, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it was necessary for her to be um, absolutely immaculate in order to give her own flesh to Jesus. He was... Um, he came from her bodily flesh. Um, and that includes um, her immaculate conception, includes her body, not just her soul. Mm. Now, did God know um, from all time that he was going to have um, the incarnation take place? Well, yes. How do we know that? It's because in the book of Ephesians, um, it says quite clearly that um, we were foreknown and predestined. Mm. Um, to come and the Blessed Mother also. Um, so if he foreknew that she was coming, then um, would he have um, chosen to make his original humans, Adam and Eve, out of dust or out of uh, a pre-human creature? Mm -hmm. 
my idea is that he would have done it out of dust because we have a unique origin. We are not animals. We are especially created in the image and likeness of God. And it's all because of the coming of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. It's all because he is, um, this form that we have was one created by God to give to his son. So when it comes to the human person, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think in Genesis, I think all the creatures were made and the human was the last. And then yes. he's put in charge of all these other creatures that are made um, mm -hmm. to to overrule them and to name them and to be in charge mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. So how is this human person distinct in in not being an animal, especially to somebody who says, oh, well, we just came from animals. How is it that we are distinct? How we, Homo sapiens sapiens, distinct from a Cro-Magnon or, or anything else? Yeah, well, um, there are ca capacities we have that animals do not have. Mm -hmm. um, our language is capable of incredible complexity, and there is no way that any animal language is um, even close to starting. Mm -hmm. um, then there is our our free will, our ability to um, know the consequences of our actions mm -hmm. and to know good from evil and to be able to choose based on that. Um, animals don't actually have that capacity. Mm -hmm. They're not created with free will. They have, um, well, Thomas Aquinas says it this way. There is a vegetative form, which is plants, and then there is a animal form, and then they, they don't have free will or language or morality. And then there's the human form, which has all three. Mm. Language, free will, and morality, um, our ability to choose right from wrong. Those are the three main ways that we're different. Um, but I think also we have a sense of the sacred. Um, we have a sense that we do have a creator, uh, even in places where no one has heard of Christ and the story of redemption. They have elements of the story of salvation in their own teaching, and not the whole story, but maybe parts of the story here and there. God intends for everyone to have the chance to be saved. And I think that He. He makes sure that that is possible. Um, we need to spread the word about salvation, but um, I can't say theologically that it's valid to say this, but my belief is that he allows a way for people who've never heard the good news to receive it at the end of their life. Mm. And I That's just complete speculation on my part. That's spoken like a true scientist. Uh, but <laughs> how does this actually shape your own conversion? How did all of this research and and all of this stuff shape your own conversion story? My conversion story started when I was 14. My father, was he's an army officer, was going to go to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, I was raised Presbyterian, and he asked me to take uh, confirmation classes, the equivalent in the Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. I took it. Uh, the class was studying the book of Acts, mm -hmm. and we got to the end of the book of Acts, 
And I said to the teacher, so what happened next? Now, I assume your audience knows that the book of Acts ends in the middle of a story. It doesn't tell us, it doesn't finish like a, mm. a regular story uh, we would read in a book. It just stops. Mm. And so there needed to be more to the story. And if it was historical story, I expected that that story would finish and then more things would happen and it would all come to the present time. Teacher said, no, I don't know what happened next. And I thought to myself, well, then it can't be historical because if it was historical, we would know hmm. what came next. Uh, secretly, though, I uh, I didn't know this at the time, but of course, the Catholic Church knows what came next. Hmm. Every Mass, um, uh, when it's the Mass is said completely, we hear the lineage of all of the popes recited. Hmm. And... Um, so the Catholic Church knows what came next. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I didn't know that, and neither did the teacher. So um, I decided, well, it must be um, not true if there is no knowledge in what came next. But a few years later, um, I was in Kansas. My parents had given me a horse. I uh, was riding out in the hills of Kansas um, where there were no signs of human habitation, no telephone poles, no houses, no roads. And it was just completely beautiful. It was uh, pristine, the grasslands, the insects, the birds. I don't know if you've ever heard a meadowlark, but they have the sweetest song. Mm -hmm. And the sky, the clouds, um, it was just gorgeous. And I became convinced that the beauty in nature is an argument for the existence of God because yeah. beauty doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah. Randomness doesn't produce beauty. And, and that was the beginning of my conversion. Um, the next step I had to come to faith in Christ. And that was from reading the gospel of John and then asking for forgiveness and um, giving my life over to him. Mm -hmm. Then of course, years and years later, I became Catholic. So if you had one piece of advice or let's say you have an atheist listen listening to us who's never really experienced god who's never really heard about jesus who's heard but you know this is just some story what is the one thing that you would say that could change their life or in support of the existence of god today well first thing is i would urge them to get out into nature and just look at what's there and ask themselves could this have come from randomness if they're a molecular biologist, ask them to look at um, the complexity of the cell and the genetic code and everything that it takes to make it all happen and ask themselves, could that have come from randomness? And finally, I would say, if you want to believe, ask God to give you faith mm -hmm. and he will answer that prayer. Maybe not right away, but he will answer that prayer. That is amazing. Um, so we're at the end, uh, any last bits of advice that you have or any, anything else that you want to throw in there? Well, I encourage people to get the book we've published. It's called yeah. God's Grander, mm -hmm. a case, the Catholic case for intelligent design. And you can get it from Sophia Institute Press. They're the ones who published it or from Amazon. So it's God's Grander. The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, and it gives the evidence for intelligent design that argues for a creator based on science, philosophy, and theology. 
it's very, it's got uh, authors, very well-known authors, uh, all of them Catholic and from the Catholic perspective. And if people want to reach out to you or speak to you or have you over to speak to them for conferences, where can they find you online? Online, um, well, probably the best way to reach me is through my um, my email address. It's um, a g a u g e r at discovery.org. I have a um, sub stack, which is like a website, and that's n a n n g a u g e r dot substack dot org, and that's where they can find more of my writing. Mm. Okay. All right. So thank you so much, Anne, for joining us today and talking about this wonderful subject. Uh, I hope people can listen to it. And I know it's 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 a lot to take, but I hope people can really, really uh, buy your book and understand, you know, the idea of intelligent design and the idea of God and, and God is a loving father. So thank you so much, Anne, especially during Thanksgiving week for doing this at such short notice. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.